Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, science correspondent at The Economist. Coming up on today's show, the challenges of creating cobots, robots that work collaboratively with humans. When you have to build a system that is a safety critical system, that means it has to work every single time. And in a complex and changing environment, that is a very tall order. And who should have the right to know if they're carrying a hereditary disease? Medicine in general and predictive genetic testing in particular are all about grey, really. And that doesn't sit well with a legal system that is binary, that's all about black and white. But first, fertility scientists have announced a way to help women delay the menopause for up to 20 years. It involves surgery and is being offered by a company based in Birmingham in the United Kingdom called Protecting Fertility and Menopause, or ProFam. The company says their procedure could help women avoid some of the serious health problems which come with the menopause and that it could potentially give some women a chance to have their children later in their lives. Professor Simon Fischel is the chief executive and co-founder of ProFam. Hello, Simon. Hello there. Simon, can you start by just explaining how your procedure is carried out? So as simply as I can, a woman has two ovaries. And what we do is, through keyhole surgery and using microsurgical techniques, we take one-third to one-half of the outer shell of one ovary, and that tissue is removed from the patient in a procedure that lasts about 30 minutes. The tissue is then transferred to a highly specialised laboratory and then bathed in a special nutrient and cryoprotectant, fancy word for antifreeze. And then we drop the temperature slowly down using computerised freezing methods to about minus 150 degrees centigrade, where the tissue can remain for decades, many decades, without any biological degradability. And so how does this actually act to slow down the menopause? If and when we need to use it, it would be thawed out through a specialised thawing method to get it back up to room temperature eventually. And through a similar keyhole procedure is grafted back to the woman. It could be anywhere from the back inside the abdominal cavity, near the reproductive tract, far from the reproductive tract, or somewhere under the skin, such as the armpit, where there's a blood supply. And so how does this actually act to slow down the menopause? Because the ovarian tissue contains all, at birth anyway, all the eggs a woman will have. And then eventually when all those eggs are used up, that's when the menopause hits. Now, inextricably linked to those eggs by the ovary are the hormones produced for a woman's fertile period. And those are the very hormones that keep a woman from going into the menopause. So if we take tissue and freeze it and we thaw some out and we transfer it to a blood supply, we know that 
within four to six months, 95% of patients or more have that tissue reactivated, it's linked into the bloodstream, starts functioning, and it kickstarts the hormone production. And it will always kickstart the hormone production, whether it's for fertility preservation or not. So the idea here is to say, well, let's use that hormone production to keep the woman in her premenopausal state. What kind of success rate have you had in the procedure you described? So taking sections of ovarian tissue out and then re-implanting them, how long have the women in your trials had them and, and what success have you had? So let me put this into context. This work is based on 20 years of treatment of patients with cancer. And this was used to help women with cancer to preserve their fertility. So we know from those patients that actually the graft works, the graft can produce eggs. It's been about 5,000 cases. Uh, those women who've wanted to get pregnant, the success rate actually is pretty high, so they're, they're producing the eggs quite well, which means that they're producing the hormones extremely well. The distinction now for Profan being launched is it's the first organisation in the world that has a government regulatory authority licence to freeze the tissue. That's the key here, because up until now and we know that as i say the cancer work is successful so we believe that we should now start to use this tissue to provide the opportunity to a young generation for hormonal preservation and that's what hasn't been done before you mentioned that obviously that a key part of this is to freeze the tissue are there risks to freezing tissue for long periods like 10 or 20 years does the tissue degrade in any way do we know any of that there have been uh, at least two decades of tissue frozen and there's been experiments in research labs of, of longer showing that it's not deleterious to that tissue. Even if there's some degrading going on, it's difficult for us to know that because it actually functions. What would you say to people who find this a little bit difficult ethically? Some people might say you shouldn't be trying to delay your menopause if you're a healthy woman by 20 years. Well, I think there's a, an extensive conversation we must have around this uh, in terms of the ethics, and I, and I accept there are going to be debates. On that one particular point about extending or delaying the menopause period, a lot of people have said, well, you know, the menopause is natural. It's, it, it's an evolutionary event. Why meddle with it? The reality is that women are now living longer. That is going to create longer periods of health issues. If you look at some of them, some of the really severe ones, like osteoporosis, for example, that is a, a very long time to be struggling with a very severe condition. So it may have a lot of health benefits to an individual to delay the menopause for that particular reason. There's lots of other reasons too. And Simon, you've talked about menopause in this conversation, but can the technique you're applying be used to preserve fertility as well at some point in the future? Absolutely it can. And if you're a young woman, we would say it's a two-for-one technology, really, because if for any reason you might need to have eggs later in your life, then you've got hundreds and hundreds of eggs stored in that tissue, your own eggs, when you were young, at the best time for you to use if you want to. If you do use them, or even if you don't use them, and there's tissue left over, you can still use the remaining tissue for hormonal preservation for delaying the menopause. And this is something you would do, is to, is to take this for women who want to preserve eggs for the future? Uh, absolutely. And I, what I relish here now is the conversation, because 
I think, and this is what Profam has decided to do, our, our founding colleagues have decided this is the time to say this generation, this young generation needs the opportunity to hear the debate, to listen to the medical science opportunity and to take a decision for themselves. Because if we keep saying, well, you know, we shouldn't be offering this to young people because it's not been done before, it's like going back to my early days in IVF when I was there at the very beginning and people said that we shouldn't do IVF. People, society, our colleagues, Nobel Prize winners just said we shouldn't do IVF. There are 14 million parents today who would be pretty miserable if we hadn't stuck to our guns. Simon, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Often on this show, we look at how robots and artificial intelligence will affect humans in the future. While some are worried about robots replacing us, others are busy working hard to make sure humans and robots can work collaboratively. Our regular Babbage host, Ken Kukie, spoke to Clara Vu, the co-founder and vice president of engineering at Veo Robotics, about cobots. These are machines built to physically interact with humans on tasks. Ken started by asking Clara why further advances in robotics are necessary. One problem with robots today in manufacturing is that while they are powerful and strong and repeatable, for those same reasons, they're dangerous. Um, So robots in factories today are literally kept in cages. That's not to keep the robots in. It's to keep people out so they don't get hurt. Um, So what that means is that you can't have robots doing part of a task and humans doing another part of the same task. And that's a problem because while robots have many superhuman capabilities, they are also nowhere near human ability in terms of dexterity and flexibility and judgment and perception. So your technology finds a way to overcome that by allowing the robot to work with the humans. How does your technology work? We essentially build eyes and brains for giant industrial robots. So we use custom time-of-flight depth sensing and computer vision algorithms to monitor the work cell that an industrial robot is working in and see people and allow the robot to be aware of their presence and uh, modify their actions so that the person will always be safe. Now, you are a pioneer and leader in the industry for making the case that this is a hard problem. But the way that you've described it to me, it doesn't sound so hard. So why is this so hard to do? It has to be completely reliable. People have been building grad student demos, you know, put a bunch of cameras around, see the people and don't hit them for a decade or two. But when you have to build a system that is a safety critical system, that means it has to work every single time. And in a complex and changing environment, that is a very tall order. I usually tell people if they want to commercialize a robotic product in a couple of years, they need to pick something the average grad student thinks they could build in a couple of weeks. Now we're seeing the installation of this sort of technology here and there in a few factories, but we've not actually seen it at a broader scale. When do you expect that robots that collaborate with humans will be just a general part of the economy? I think technology is definitely moving in a direction that makes it much more feasible, but manufacturing does move slowly. You know, people build assembly lines to run for years or, you know, in the cases of aerospace, even decades. So it'll definitely be a few years before this becomes completely commonplace. What do you see as the holy grail for cobots? I think the way that we would like to envision it is essentially that safety of this kind 
becomes something that these collaborative possibilities become something that's kind of like you know compressed air or 483 phase power and that it's available really throughout the factory and that it can be assumed to be a fundamental part of any systems integrator or a manufacturing engineer is designing. What product do you think might be the tipping point product, the threshold product that once it's being built by a cobot, then it's going to be everywhere? We do see a lot of interest in automotive, which is generally the 600-pound gorilla of durable goods manufacturing. It's where a lot of the innovation occurs. Anywhere that people use industrial robots, we see people that want to use industrial robots in collaborative applications. Well, wait a minute. If we're going for self-driving cars and automated vehicles, surely we're going to be designing these things and making these things automatedly as well through self-driving robots rather than ones that have to work with human beings, a level five automation. The level five equivalent in manufacturing automation is quite different from self-driving because self-driving cars is a very, very complex perception problem because it's working in an unstructured environment. But it's actually a very straightforward actuation problem. You basically have left, right, slow, fast. Whereas manufacturing, you're dealing with um, very complex manipulation and every single manufacturing step is different. So just because you had level five autonomy in self-driving cars actually would not take you anywhere close to level five autonomy in manufacturing processes. So it sounds like this is sort of robots for realists. Insofar as the robots that you're applying this technology to are not trying to do everything but only a small portion of it, and this is sort of enabling them to do that small portion, accepting the fact that they can't do it all. I've been working in robotics for about 20 years at this point, and like many people who've been doing this for that long, you gain a deep appreciation for human beings, and you discover how so many of the things we do that we completely take for granted are really beyond the capabilities of even the most advanced automation today. And so what we are trying to do is, you know, we don't think that the lights out factory, you know, where everything is produced completely by robots, we don't think that that's where the future of manufacturing is going. We think that the future of manufacturing is going to be closer and more fluid collaboration between machines and people. The example that uh, my co-founder Patrick often likes to use is, Um, comparing it to um, like a a farmer with a plow horse. Um, The plow horse allows the farmer to do things that they could not have done alone, um, but the plow horse by itself can't run a farm. Clara Vu, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Clara Vu talking to Ken Kukier. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And finally, in this information-saturated age, what happens when the right to know comes up against the right not to know? The ease of genetic testing has brought this question to the fore. You might want to know if you're a carrier of a hereditary genetic disease such as Huntingdon's. But then, if you do find out, who else should be allowed to know the results? Journalist Laura Spinney has been looking at some of the legal battles in trying to decide who has the right to this information 
for this week's science section. Hello, Laura. Hello. Laura, tell us about these two cases you've written about. So there's a case in the UK which has had quite a lot of airtime, but it's um, ongoing. It's coming up to trial at the High Court in London in November. And um, essentially, the story is that a woman sued the London Hospital St George's Healthcare NHS Trust, uh, which treated her um, father for not telling her his diagnosis of Huntington's disease. Huntington's is a lethal neurodegenerative disease which is caused by a single mutation. So any child of an affected parent has a 50% chance of inheriting the mutation and the disease. She was pregnant at the time of his diagnosis and she argues that if she had known it, she would have terminated that pregnancy. As it was, she gave birth to a daughter who is um, a minor at the moment and so who can't be tested for the disease yet. But she is at risk now for Huntington's. And the second case? And the second case, which is much less well known, in fact, barely known at all in the UK, this is a German case that um, happened a few years ago. And this is a woman in the city of Koblenz who sued a doctor for telling her that her ex-husband had Huntington's, so the same disease. The doctor was not her doctor, he was her um, ex-husband's, and the ex-husband had given the doctor permission to share this information because they had two joint children, also underage at the time. The woman argued that um, because her children were underage and because Huntington's is currently incurable, she could do nothing with this information. She was helpless to act on it. It sent her into a reactive depression and left her unable to work. So these are two fascinating cases that come at something that's, you know, we're going to have to face more and more as we understand our genetics. In the UK case, isn't it quite clear cut that genetic information is private? It might be sensible for me to tell somebody that um, there's a genetic condition that might affect them if I've got something, but I don't have to. Currently, in UK law and in the law of many other countries, the only legal obligation on a doctor is to respect a patient's confidentiality. But... What we're really discussing here is the definition of a patient. Doctors are given informal guidance that's not recognised yet in law from organisations like the General Medical Council, which indicate that there might be situations in which they have a duty to disclose um, information, genetic information in this instance, to members of the patient's family, if not doing so, might result in death or serious harm. The official guidelines, in other words, recognise that there might be exceptions to the law of confidentiality, but those are not recognised in law. And so what this trial is all about at a deeper level, beyond this particular case, is whether that duty of disclosure should also be enshrined in law. And I suppose with the German case, the person um, at the centre of that feels like she shouldn't have been told... But again, I mean, this is just information. It's not certain that her children would have carried on with this. So it's, it's very difficult to say that that information is going to actually lead to anything necessarily negative. That's absolutely right. I mean, there are lots of issues here coming back to the definition of a patient. She did not herself consent to be tested, nor did her children. But if it had been her who knew she was at risk at Huntington's, she could have chosen or not to have the test. In this case, she didn't have that choice. So we're also talking about a right not to know. Huntington's disease is a particularly um, 
terrible condition and that has a specific genetic cause. There are many diseases that have multiple genes involved and it's very difficult to work out what percentage chance you're going to have of getting them. Where do these sorts of rulings about the cases you're writing about lead us when it comes to understanding more about our own genetics? I mean, there's going to be so many shades of grey. I mean, I think the main thing to take away from these two cases is that it's complicated ethically and legally, even when the situation is medically clear-cut. If you have the mutation that causes Huntington's disease, you will develop the disease itself, assuming you live long enough. But that is really rare medically. Most genetic testing is going to reveal an increased predisposition to a disease. So medicine in general and predictive genetic testing in particular are all about grey, really. And that doesn't sit well with a legal system that is binary, that's all about black and white. How do you think this case might affect the future relationships between doctors and their patients, um, these sorts of people who help people understand genetic diagnoses? Well, it's already changing medical practice, arguably, because there have been a a few previous court decisions about this same case. There have been some reversals. And in 2017, there was an appeal court decision which allowed the trial to go ahead. It had previously been stopped. But this 2017 decision allowed it to go ahead on the grounds that it was in the public interest to discuss whether there might be a legal case for doctors to disclose information to family members. So the law, in a way, recognised that it was something that needed to be debated. And many doctors are already acting because of that as if the duty of disclosure was recognised in law when it isn't. So in a way, that decision added to the uncertainty and more clarity would be very much welcomed by some people in this area, but they may not get it. Laura, we'll look forward to the results of this case. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Thank you. And you can find more stories like this in the science section of this week's Economist. And why not try out a subscription? Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.